Welcome back to Juncture Podcast. If anyone is listening for the first time, Juncture represents my love of films and dreams and the connections between them. These are also the two topics that I discuss on this podcast. I believe that dreams are films our mind creates and films are dreams actualized. I use a multidisciplinary approach to examine films and dreams through the use of symbols, imagery, motifs, as well as narrative and visual techniques involved in storytelling and understanding meaning. I think I might need to shorten my shorten the intro a little bit. Um, today, I'm going to be talking about one of my all-time favorite films. Eve's Bayou, Um, and I also want to make sure to note that because of February being Black History Month, um, Eve's Bayou is going to be the um, inaugural film film, um, analysis. I'm going to do four um, Black feature films. This one is really special, not only because it's my, you know, it's my favorite, I really like it, but it's also by a black female director, so that's always, that's always good. So I'm just going to get into this because I feel like I'm going to be really, really long-winded because I really like this movie, so I'm going to try to keep on track and stick to my outline. Um, a quick synopsis. Um, Eve's Bayou is a 1997 American drama film written and directed by Cassie Lemons, as well as this being her directorial debut. Um, Samuel L. Jackson served as producer and he also stars in the film along with Lisa Nicole Carson, Journey Smollett, Lynn Whitfield, Debbie Morgan, Megan Good, Diane Carroll, Vonnie Curtis Hall, and... uh, Journey Smollett's brother, Jake Smollett. It's in the summer of 1962 in Louisiana. A 10-year-old girl named Eve Batiste discovers that her family's affluent existence is merely a facade. The philandering of her suave doctor father, Louis Samuel L. Jackson, creates a rift throwing Eve's mother, Ross, Lynn Whitfield, and teenage sister, Cicely, Megan Good into emotional turmoil. Eve, though, managed to find some solace with her psychic aunt, Moselle, who is played by Debbie Morgan. Um, The cast, I I wanted to do a quick run through the cast because it's just, I like how it's sort of, uh, everyone sort of has, either someone has ties to Louisiana or it's like a kind of like a family affair kind of thing where like everyone knows everybody and it's like they I guess you know they they sort of have like this history with each other maybe that made the film easier but I just thought it was all these people that I know from like other films show up in here and I thought that was really cool so of course Journey Smollett this was her first uh maybe her second it was her second film, I believe, because she did the film with Robin Williams. This was like her first film where she sort of stars. You know, she's like the central character. 
so she's Eve. Tamara Tooney is the voice of adult Eve, and you may know her as the medical examiner on Law and Order SVU. Uh, Megan Good, Jake Smollett is Poe. He is Janine's real life brother, and he plays her little brother in this film. Debbie Morgan, um, many of you may know her from soap operas, and she was also known as the seer in uh, Charmed. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson, he's, he's been in all kind of stuff. Um, the forever snatched, uh, Lynn Whitfield. <laughs> she is, she's from Louisiana. I thought it was cool. Of course, Diane Carroll, she was a film pioneer. She is Elzora. Lisa Nicole Carson, she plays Maddie in this. I believe she was in, you may know her from Allie McBeal. Um, Roger... Gunnar Gunnar <laughs> Smith I should have probably googled how to pronounce his name but he's Lenny Moreau um I know his face from a lot of stuff but I can't think of anything off the top of my head and I didn't write anything down for him um Bonnie Curtis Hall is Julian Gray Raven he's Debbie's Morgan's love interest in this film he's also the the spouse partner husband of uh, Cassie Lemons, the director. Um, Bradford Marsalis, he's Harry. He's actually a jazz musician and he's a native of Louisiana. Ethel Ayler, which um, she was Grand Mayor, which is um, Journey Smollett's character's grandmother. She also played Claire Huxtable's mother on The Cosby Show. Um, also, Victoria Rowell has a small part in this film, and she was also a soap opera star. And um, I believe she has a son by Wynton Marsalis, who is the brother of Branford Marsalis, I believe. And he plays Harry in this film, who is Moselle's third husband in this film. <laughs> Um, and before I get into the juicy bits of this film, spoiler alert, because this everything is going to be revealed. So if you haven't seen the movie, I don't know why you haven't seen this movie. You should see it. But if you haven't seen it, um, you might want to stop listening. Well, no, you definitely want to stop listening now because I'm just going to ruin everything for you. So proceed with caution. Um, to start off, there are two versions of this film. There, I guess you consider the director's cut, which is the un, uncut version, <laughs> and the theatrical cut, which is what was shown in theaters, released on you know the DVDs or the VHS because this was made in 1997, so they still have VHS then. Um, the director I believe is okay the director's cut is like the uncut version and it's longer by at least like 20 or 30 minutes um it includes a handicapped uncle that lives with a family and additional dialogue between um Cicely and her father Lewis also important to know in the director's cut the uncle was the only witness to the incident between Cicely and her father, the infamous incident. Um, and that 
that all that stuff is cut out of the theatrical version. So it it the ending is sort of up up to debate. Um, but I think from my opinion, from watching the director's cut the longer version, it I felt like after the movie I kinda had more an, an idea of what happened. But still not one hundred percent certain. But the theatrical cut, um because there were certain things that were a little weird that were cut out and that leaves a lot more to be interpreted in regards to the ending, in regards to what happened between Cicely and her father. Um, a quick rundown of the plot. The film opens up with a party taking place at the Batiste home. The father um, is dancing. He ends up dancing with his oldest daughter, Cicely who's 14, and the younger daughter Eve gets jealous. Eve runs out of the house and goes to the carriage house where she falls asleep. Now, I mentioned the incident between Cicely and her father. That's the second incident. The first incident is when Eve is woken up by the sounds of her father and a partygoer, Maddie Moreau, having sex in the carriage house. She just about has a panic attack. Her father calms her, calms her down. Um, this particular event, incident number one, is the catalyst that begins to unravel Eve's idyllic childhood and the manicured facade of the Batiste family begins to crumble. Um, so the children, especially the oldest, Cecily is 14, Eve is 10, um, they begin taking on more proactive very adult actions in order to save the family. Cicely's action um, ultimately culminates into incident number two, where a kiss is shared between a drunken Lewis and Cicely that leads to blurred boundaries and confusion and foggy memories. At the end of the film, there is no certainty of what really happened, but... Of course, this is my podcast. I'm going to give my opinion of what happened, what I feel happened between Cecily, Cecily and her father. Um, so all of this is going on between, you know, this turmoil between Cecily and her father and Cecily and Eve and Eve and her father. And all this is going on because... Um, all the adults are focused on each other or themselves and they're not really focusing on the kids. So Roz is, she's too focused on Lewis. Um, she's focused on trying to save her marriage. You know, um, Lewis is too focused on other women and himself. The children have their Aunt Moselle, but even she is distracted between trying to comfort Roz. Um, she is also, Moselle is also dealing with the loss of yet another husband, her third husband, and the presence of a new um, lover whom she fears will end up like the others did. Um, she has very little time to focus on her niece, her nieces and nephews. Speaking of her nephew, her poor nephew Poe, the youngest of the Batiste family, he's nine years old. He's pretty much ignored. Um, so it's like, 
nobody's nobody's focused on the children and so you have all these emotions all this uh these feelings this misunderstandings confusion is all going on and there's no one there to really interpret it for them or help them make sense of it because they're all distracted i broke up this analysis as i do with all of the analysis into uh a reoccurring symbols or themes and so with this one, I broke it up into memories, loss of innocence, children taking action to save the adults um, and to preserve their family, ignoring warning signs, and the color purple and blue, or the colors purple and blue. And then within each of these major symbols, I have, I kind of broke it up into little categories, um, like subcategories. And then at the end, I have one, uh, I won't mention it until the end, because, I, I mean, I could sort of tie it back into the movie, but it really wasn't a reoccurring theme enough to make it like a major theme. And then I couldn't really fit it into the other things, so it's like its own little category and extras. I'm going to start off with memories, and within memories, um, I have a subcategory called techniques and visuals. There are several instances in the film where memories are beautifully visually expressed. Um, the film techniques, the elements they used are amazing. The opening sequence is really amazing. The voiceover of Tamara Tooney is perfect. I'm I'm gonna go into it in more detail, but it's 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 so good, it's so good. Um, in techniques, they use black and white, and uh, the black and white color of film and a photographs, like of a video film, like moving film, and then still film and photographs, um, is used to differentiate the past from the present. And black is black and white is also used to show the dream and the psychic sequences in this film. So it it's used to separate these different things and then as a transition, um, you know, like this is waking life and this is Moselle having a psychic vision. So there's two there's different reasons why they're using it. I also like how the memories are done with the people from the present inserted into the scene from the past. So it's almost as if you're watching a film and within the film, the characters are doing a play of something that happened in the past. So I, 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 don't, I don't know like the, the film, the technical technique for this or how it's used, but it's like you're watching them watch themselves remember something and I, I don't think, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, like any other movie where I've seen that done before. Um, but the way this is done is like so good. So it's as if, it's as if the watchers, the watchers and the narrators, which are the characters in the film, are participants in the you know like you're watching it but then 
I don't know. It, it just, it's, it, it, it pulls you in, in a way. And so it feels like, you know, not only me as a watcher, but the watchers within the film that are like watching what's going on. And it's like the memory in, in someone's head is being visually reenacted in the present. And so the people that are watching it are also like, they're imagining this and you're seeing their imagination acting out in the same, um, in the same, uh, what's it called? Like in the same, um, like it's all in one room. Like it's in, it's all in one, like it's all one cut, you know, and you're watching this memory and it's all hacking off. Uh, acting happening on the same plane like there's no fade sequence where you know it's uh, you know she's imagining it's like a dream sequence it's not like that like it's all happening on the same stage in the same area and uh, I, I don't know how to explain it you if you've seen the movie you know which scene I'm talking about there's a scene where Moselle is telling Eve about how she how her first husband was killed and it starts off where she's sitting on a couch talking to Eve and then she gets up and she's looking in a mirror and the mirror is like a portal. It's like a window into the past. So she's sort of looking into her reflection literally and then figuratively, figuratively looking, reflecting back on her past through the mirror. And so the camera is looking at her looking in the mirror and then as you're looking at her looking in the mirror in the mirror behind her you see the past being reenacted through the reflection of the mirror and she's narrating and then it's in a point in the story where she moves out of the the foreground film and then she appears in the background film so now she's not in, you're not looking at her, looking in the mirror, looking at her past. You're looking at the past and you see her in the past through the mirror. But she's not in the past. She's in the present, remembering the past. Like, oh, it's crazy. But you're so focused and captivated by this scene at the end of the scene there's like a gunshot and you jump Eve jumps at the gunshot because she's pulled into by you know pulled into the story and so you're so into your focus on this mirror and you're like looking and you're and you're, you're seeing her pain and then all this trauma that's going on and then you know there's like this pause she delivers her lines perfectly then there's a pause and there's a gunshot and it's like Oh my God, like the gunshot sort of like brings you back to the present, you know, and then the, you know, it fades the, the scene that's happening in the mirror just kind of disappears. It's just like poof, it's gone after the gunshot, you know, and it brings you back to the present. This is, it's magic. Y'all, it's magic. Um, (laughs) I spent a little bit too much time talking about that. The opening sequence is also really, really good. It's very haunting, and it's done in black and white. And I felt like it was a premonition, sort of a flash forward of what's to come. 
because it has this sort of gloomy, gothic, doom, you know, you just, the way Tamara Tooney is doing the voice over and then the visuals and it's in black and white and it's like slow and it's ghostly looking and people are fading in and out and it's just like, oh, you know, Lord, like something is about to happen bad in this film, like whatever is coming, you know, it's going to be bad. So it's, it serves as its own premonition and she has this, this, this monologue in the beginning where she's talking about memories and it's just it's perfect it like summarizes what this whole film is about all I mean the act the act of remembering and misremembering and and faulty memories and being a kid and and, and not knowing how to interpret things so your memory is going to be different than an adult that remembers the same thing you know like so many layers to this guys so, speaking more on the opening sequence, the, the Batiste family are descendants of a slave woman who was also a healer and the man that was her owner. The woman is, uh, the woman is named Eve, so she's the first Eve, and then Eve Batiste is the second Eve. And, and when I go through this thing that that I wrote in here, I, I refer to the the first Eve, like you know the descendants that Eve and her family come from. The the woman, um, she's like the first Eve, and she was an African slave, and it's like you know Eve, the first woman in the Bible, is the first Eve in this story for this family, and she's also from Africa. And I was like, okay. I like that symbolism there. Also, the town is called Eve's Bayou. That's the name of the town. Also the name of the film. Obviously, if you didn't get that when I first started. So this woman, she was like the narr Tamara Tuni, the narrator, the adult Eve, she says she was a healer. And she saved this this uh French guy saved his life with her with her healing um, abilities or her healing knowledge and so that made me think like oh she's like uh you know she does um hoodoo or root work or you know she's knows medicine herbs like this is something that you know that probably came with her from Africa and then she brought it over here and she's using you know knowledge and medicine that's probably passed down from like mother to daughter and this sort of ability to heal and want to heal people and want to save people and want to help people is also passed down to Louis Batiste who's a doctor and also his sister Moselle Batiste who is she's not a medical doctor but she is what she calls herself a psychic counselor. And I think she also does like a little root work. But she's able to have, um, she gets visions, she has second sight. So she has this gift and, you know, this desire to help people because that's what she does with her ability. Like she helps people in, in the town. And then also Eve also has this psychic ability. So it's something that's passed down through the Batiste family line. Um, and then I, I forgot to mention that it also shows how science and medicine and hoodoo are used 
or can be used or were used in conjunction with each other and how they are complementary um, to each other and not like, you know, opposites or they work against each other. Um, onward to more talking about memories, but photos in this film are used to represent memories and to signify transitions. Um, photos at the beginning of the of the film when they're having the party, uh, Moselle's husband at the time, Harry, um, he was taking photos of uh, people at the party. He has a camera. He's taking photos. Um, and when he takes a photo, there's the sound of the shutter, and then the 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 visual film video film stops and it turns to black and white you know like it pauses like oh a photo has been taken and the photo um it, the scene you know when it snaps the picture it's it does a snapshot in black and white and so this made me feel that it signified the past and it captures memories and i mean that's what photos do um they capture memories um it made me also feel that something bad was going to happen because it's the same thing at the beginning of the film they do the the history of the Batiste family and that footage is in black and white and then you know you get that gloom and, and dark and gloomy and then they have these photos in black and white and um it's just like this portion because it's different than everything else it's significant significant in some way but I don't know it just got eerie and spooky in the black and white and I was just like this is not good taking photos um the black and white also symbolizes uh, I don't know I mean for me because it symbolizes the past and things that are old things that I guess you could say we don't use anymore um it symbolizes things that are dead and gone or inactive Photos were taken at the party of both Moselle and Roz, as well as the children making a toast. Um, photos as memories of happier times, and that after that point, things were going to change because we take photos to remember things as they are in that moment because they'll never be that way again. And we know that after this point is when even catches her father cheating with Maddie Monroe and things change, you know, forever for the family. Um, the film has an undertone of faulty memories, uh, multiple instances throughout the film that I'm going to, um, you know, you'll notice as I discuss that these memories are not as absolute and 100% certain as we wish they would be. Um, things are remembered differently by people of different ages and the interpretation can be different depending on the person's age, their maturity, what they know, what's internally going on with them. If they're distracted, you know, their memory is going to be more faulty. Um, Eve believes now this is her memory, how she remembers things, 
and it's not necessarily true. Her her belief is that she killed her father, and that's the opening line of the film. And I was the summer I killed my father, I was ten years old. That's the opening line, I believe. And so she believes that. But as the fortune teller Azora tells Roz, sometimes a soldier falls on his own sword. And that Lewis, that Eve didn't kill him. Lewis would have eventually gotten caught up in his own life, in his own lies, in his adultery. And Eve's interference, getting involved in grown folks' business, um, just sped up the inevitable. Um, another one of my favorite scenes um and I I talked about this earlier when I got really long-winded, but Moselle reenacting her memory of her first husband dying. Um, it shows how the past... Okay, so before I say this, so on the faulty memories, so ugh, Moselle is... Her love life is a train wreck, and I'm going to go into detail. I'm, I'm trying to stay on track. <laughs> she said her love life is a train wreck. Um, and her memory is of of I mean I don't want to say her memory, but her belief, like I kind of said with Eve, her belief, and this is sort of like her memory, is that somehow she is cursed. And that the things that are happening to her, the events that are happening to her are beyond her control. And that this curse that's been placed on her is, is predetermined. It's it's predestined. Like, this is just going to happen to her no matter what. But that's not the case. She just has a raggedy love life and she's reckless. Um, and so she, her faulty memory is, I don't, I, don't, I mean, there's got to be some backstory on this. Maybe it's just like the cultural belief of the time that, all this woman's, all her husbands are dead. They died on her, you know, like somehow, I mean, it is her fault, but, but I mean, I don't know why I laugh. That's not funny. It, it is her fault, but it's not like she's cursed. You know, it's not like she's helpless and she just can't stop these men from dying. You know, there's actions that she's doing. There are things that she's doing that, that, that are causing these people to get, in these entanglements with her, like in her first, her first, uh, her first husband, Lord. Um, but back onto memories, um, in the, in the scene of her talking to Eve about, you know, her husband getting shot, the past, you know, in this crazy scene of inception kind of thing that's going on, the past is in, in, entwined with the present and so our memories are the present and our present are the memories and we're like trapped in our memories and and how we the things we believe about ourselves are not exactly true but it's sort of faulty and it's like a skewed or misunderstood perception of what's really going on like Roz believing that she's cursed 
in instead of believing that she's at fault. She's actually in fault of, you know, her own these own these events that are happening to her. Okay. The next um theme is loss of innocence. Um this is a weird it's kind of a So the whole thing with Sicily, I don't know. It's, it's really weird, um, and I've I've read online. I've read people's comments, and I've heard different interpretations of it. And you know, even with my interpretation, I feel a little. It's just it's a weird it's a weird situation. It's weird events, but anyway, um, the loss of innocence. The first major one, of course, being Eve seeing her father cheat. After being discovered by her father and Manny Moreau, Eve talks with her father outside and she is looking for reassurance. She's concerned and she's worried. And Lewis <laughs> knows that he's messed up. You know what I mean? Because, you know, Cicely is the oldest one. And. Um, Eve and Poe are the youngest and it's like you know that that innocence of youth and childhood and uh, hopefully as parents um, wanting to protect and preserve that innocence for your children and to have that shattered in such a shocking way as a result, you know, as a parent, as a result of your own actions. I just imagine, hopefully, you know, if he had some semblance of a conscience that at, you know, that moment, that happening, that he really know that he messed up. And I think he did, but it wasn't enough to convince him. It wasn't enough for him to stop doing what he's doing and like, hey, you know, I need to not let my child, my children see this side of me. Sort of, you know, as a parent, I would hope that, you know, a parent would want to preserve this this image of of goodness and what's right and, and, and you know, the example that they want for their children and they would sort of want to preserve that. But with Lewis, his own need to be a hero and to be admired and to get that attention and that that constant attention from people, especially women, is a stronger pull than his need to protect the innocence and to protect uh I guess the love and the the respect that his children would have for him, like his own needs surpassed his own his children's needs to you know have a, a parent that they want to admire and that they feel confident about and feel safe and that they trust and that you know is is going to make sure that their lives are happy and that their childhoods are easy and happy and and that 
things are smooth going on. You know, it's just, you know, and with the kids of them wanting to, let me stop because I'm getting in, I'm getting, I'm getting into the next subject, but okay. Back on the loss of innocence before I get too off track. So Cicely is old enough to know about what's going on with her dad and the woman in town. And, you know, she's old enough to hear, to catch wind of the gossip, you know. Um, when Eve tells her what she saw, you know, their dad with Mrs. Moreau, Cicely tries to protect Eve by implanting new, safer memories in Eve's mind. She tells Eve that she was confused and misunderstood. Though Eve seems skeptical, she trusts her sister. Above all else, she she really wants to believe she didn't see what she saw. And it's later revealed that Cicely did believe Eve the first time when Eve told her and she was protecting her. Um, she eventually um, confides in Eve that you know she already knew, and that everybody in town knows about Daddy and Maddie. So it's like boom, you know, your ten-year-old bubble is burst, is busted, it's burst. You know, your world is shattered. This view that you have of your parent of of. I guess, you know, being perfect and, and and being someone that cares about your family and your well-being. And it turns out he's this selfish philander that's being really bold and running around with women in town and there's gossip and he don't care. He's just doing his thing, you know. Um, Another loss of innocence and all the the different articles and comments and stuff that I read about this. And I didn't hear anybody specifically talk about this, but Cicely's transition to adulthood, you know, from childhood to adulthood is, you know, puberty in the middle of the film, kind of in the middle of the film, she gets her period. She doesn't tell anybody. She just kind of like, you know, secretly gets her period. I mean, she gets her period over the summer and keeps it a secret. Um, And so, it's in some skewed way, um, and it's it's not everyone's experience with puberty, but it's you know it's because it's a transition from childhood to adulthood, and childhood is marked by this sort of naive innocence and and sort of being. Uh, in the dark and sort of the ignorance about everything. Um, And so that childhood being that innocence and transitioning to adulthood is that that stage, that transition is not only a representation of the loss of of innocence of, of childhood, but the loss of the innocence of of Cicely realizing the true, the true who our who our who our dad really is, and seeing his, um, it's sort of like this un, 
protected this unfiltered view of a father. So it's like the loss of that as well. It's like a, signi a signifier, a, a symbol, a representation of the loss of that as well, of, of seeing her father in a new light. And the whole, I mean, compiled with that, I mean, the start, the onset of puberty of, 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 you know, she feels she's mature. She think, you know, she's 14. She thinks she knows it all. So she's like, okay, I'm like, I'm an adult now. Uh, I'm not a child anymore. Um, and so it's like this weird transition where you're not, where, you know, the young person doesn't feel like a kid. They feel more like adult, but adults are like, you're not an adult yet. You're still a kid. So it's like this weird period, this weird in between. And, um, that whole transition is, is not always a smooth and pleasant experience for everybody. I mean, cause not only is Cicely dealing with changes internally within her, you know, you know, uh, physically but emotionally as well and then she's also dealing with changes that are going on in her physical world you know with her family so I mean this uh, it doesn't help this transition it doesn't make it any easier and I think in the film it's enough uh, these these are all reasons why she's struggling with the transition into puberty and then there's more reasons why as well but it's, it's so much going on the next um, theme is children taking action to save the adults and preserve their family. Now, this was a lot going on. Um, Cicely is constantly trying to save her father and keep him and her mother from fighting. She's trying to also protect him. Um, she's her father's favorite and is more so looking out for him. Um, then she is, you know, really worried about her mother, um, because she resents her mother and she blames her for not doing enough and driving him away. Um, though Lewis is an adult and he is choosing to cheat on his wife, but in, she's still, you know, Cicely is still a child. She's 14. So in her mind, you know, her father is perfect, you know, like she, she knows he's, he's doing all this stuff. He's cheating on her, but she's, she's struggling with that image. And I think that's another thing that she's struggling with because she's struggling with puberty. She's struggling with this image she has of her father. You know, he's doing this stuff that she knows is wrong, you know, but she believes he's perfect, you know, Somehow she believes he can do no wrong. She's he's up on a pedestal that she's put him on. And because of that, whatever he's doing, it's not his fault. It must be something that someone else is doing. And all of that blame and anger go is directed towards her mom. Eve tries to make sense of her father's adultery from the point of view of a ten year old. Um, one day she asks him, do you ever want to have other kids? Because in her 10-year-old mind, why else would he be having sex with someone other than his wife if he didn't want to have kids with someone else? And that 
it didn't have nothing to do with that. But this is her trying to make sense, you know, Eve trying to make sense of what and, and why he's doing what he's doing. Um, Cicely feels her mother isn't doing enough to keep the family together, but Louis is the one that needs to be putting in more work that whatever is going I mean I kind of touched on what you know I believe is going on with him but you know he is the one that's taking these actions that are you know harming his family that's creating you know turmoil and creating you know anger and bites within the family so it's like, why is he not the one being held responsible to do more and to stop what he's doing, to correct his behavior? But, you know, um, there is a lot going on that is a result of the trauma and the drama. Everything reaches a boiling point when the children are start crazy because they've been cooped up in the house for weeks um, because, because of the, the vision that Moselle had of someone dying, Saraz is like, nobody is leaving the house until she says so. So the kids, they've been cooped in the house for weeks. They can't go outside. Um, Roz is, uh, she's cutting her fingers when she's, you know, chopping up food and cooking stuff all the time because she is, um, nervous and preoccupied with Lewis cheating, you know, like, what's he doing? Who's he out with? You know, is he going to be home late tonight? Like she's focused on all this stuff and she's distracted and not only by her kids, but in what, you know, she's actually supposed to be doing at home. Um, she, <laughs> there's a scene when she's, you know, cutting up the vegetables and she's cutting up like a like a professional chef with this knife and she's going so fast. And it, it remind okay, it reminded me of when Elzora tells her, um, sometimes a soldier falls on his own sword. I was like, the knife is happening, the sword is coming. Like this this danger that's coming that's gonna um sort of propel Lewis into his own demise and he's going to fall on his own sword um, is coming, like it's happening because she is just chopping these carrots so fast and I was like, oh my gosh, she's either going to cut his finger or somebody's going to get shot you know, like, it's coming like whatever it is, it's coming with this knife and her cutting and I was just like, oh my god um, also during this time, Cicely is staying in the bathtub for hours um, during this point, this is when she had gotten her period already. So she's staying in the bathtub for hours. Um, and she, like I said earlier, she didn't tell her parents and her mother and father are surprised because, you know, the family seems really close. And from their surprise, I also assumed they're really close and that this is, would have been something that Cicely would have told them or, you know, at least told her mom about and, you know, talked to her mom about it, but she didn't. Um, so much going on. Elzora warning comes into play again with Roz. Um, 
not only the part where the soldier falls on his own sword, but the part where she tells Ross to look to her children because all this stuff is gone with Cicely. She's staying in the bathtub for like hours. Like that's strange. And I mean like hours, like two or three hours. And she never questions her. Like she never asks like, what is going on? You need to get out of the bathroom. Like, let's talk what's going on. Um, you know, like the kids are cooped up in this house. She's not trying to, she's not questioning this vision or anything. She's not checking in her kids to make sure they're okay because they've been cooped up in the house for weeks. Nothing. Um, and Ozora was like, look to your children. And she's not doing that in this period because she's too focused on Lewis and her marriage and and what he's doing. And maybe she's thinking about what she can be doing or what she needs to be doing, you know, when it's not this is Lewis and this is what he's doing. Um, but she's definitely preoccupied and not focused on her children. There's also, um, there's a rivalry between both, both Cicely and Eve are competing for their father's attention and then both trying to save her marriage. Both seem jealous of the attention that each received from their father. Cicely, this is just something I, I noticed like later on when I was writing this this outline. But Cicely, there's a scene where um, Lewis picks up Eve. You know, Eve's small and she's 10 years old. And so he picks her up and he's he's holding her and he's talking to her. And Cicely's kind of like standing off to the side and she has like this little mean look on her face. And so it made me think like, this is Cicely, you know... This is where um, her rage and maybe her shame came from when she started her period because she's like, she's not going to be her daddy's little girl anymore. Like, she's older. She's going through puberty. She's a woman. Like, she's not going to be that, you know, little girl anymore. Like, Eve is sort of taking her place. And maybe she feels like, you know... Eve is going to, is getting all this, you know, is going to be getting all this attention because she's a little girl when Eve is like jealous of Cicely because, um, I think she's more mature and she feels that that is her aspiration to sort of, I think, want to be more mature. And, um, she sees her father getting attention and dancing with her because, you know, Cicely is like older and she knows how to dance and she knows how to, you know, compose herself. And she's like this little lady in this film and, you know, like jealous of each other, like envious, envious of each other and the attention they receive and like their roles that they feel that they have in their father's eye. It's just this really tense rivalry between them. And it culminates in this scene where um, Cicely chases Eve out the house and it's like choking her. And all the adults had to come out there and pull Cicely off of Eve. And then ugh, drama, y'all. Drama, drama, drama. Um, there's a, another scene during this period where they're trapped in the house. This is what I mean by there's all this stuff going on when they're trapped in the house. And... As they're trapped in the house, um, the two girls, the two daughters, are just 
Like this whole section is about, you know, they're taking on these adult roles. They're interjecting themselves in adults' business. And they're trying to be proactive and, like, do all this stuff when it's not their responsibility. Like, it's not, this is not what these kids should be doing. But, okay, so Cicely disobeys her mother. Like, they were not supposed to leave the house. Cicely goes out. She sneaks out of the house. She goes to the uh, the beauty shop, gets her hair cut and styled like her mom. Um, and she comes back and shows her. She's also wearing Roz's um, signature red lip color. Um, when she snuck out before she got her hair cut, she went to go see her father at, at his office. Like she was just out there like wilding out. And... <laughs> And she was not even supposed to leave the house. Not only did she leave the house, but she went all across town. She got a haircut. She come home with lipstick. She has never worn lipstick in this film at this point. So, y'all, you know, like, her mom is like, what the fuck? Her mom, like, lost it. Um, so, she resents her mother, but she's also, I felt like she was trying to transform into her. And trying to assume this role of adult woman and be what she feels like her mother isn't and do what she feels like her mother isn't doing to keep her father at home. And that is what Cicely is willing to do to keep her family together and it's really twisted and I think that's another place that her rage comes from because she realized that she is in this role of you know she's she wants to become her mother and she wants to take her mother's place and her role and to to not only be her mother, but be better than her mother and keep the family together. Like, I'm doing what you can't do. Like, I'm stepping up and I'm doing what you can't do. Like, I'm going to show you. But that, doing that and realizing that she's, that she's still a kid, you know, she's in between transforming, um, going through puberty. And so this confusion and... I mean, this leads to the whole faulty memory thing because she's already confused about her behavior, about what she's doing, about what's motivating her to do it. She's confused about how people are responding to how she's behaving. And so there's all this rage and all this confusion and all this stuff is going on. And of course, she's being ignored by her parents because they can't be bothered because they're dealing with their own mess and their own drama, y'all. Um, so, so, there's a lot, there there was a lot going on, um, and so that's what I, that's what I believe was going on in the scene where Cicely came downstairs after her dad came home and kissed him and because she had been waiting up for him when he would come home and 
Like, I, I mean, I don't like, what are y'all talking about? Like, you should be in bed. Like, what are you, um, as a kid, like, what, you know, like, what are you, what are you trying, like, how, how can you save him? Like, what do you think you, in her twisted 14 year old mind, like, this is what she is, what she thinks she needs to do or what she's supposed to do. And I'm just like, what, what are you supposed to be doing for him? Like, what, he's an adult, like, he, he, and there's nothing that, you know, as a 14 year old, that you can understand, that you can do for him, that you can make him change the behavior and make him stop. She doesn't realize that, but I'm just like, you know, and by the time her mom realizes that, you know, I need to step in and, you know, she doesn't need to be waiting up for him. It's too late. Like, Cicely's mind has been, um, you know, she's got all mixed up. She's already gotten all confused. Um, this has been going on for like months now, you know what I mean? And she was not looking to her children. She was not focused on her children. So by the time she steps in, you know what I mean? Like it's too late. You know, the ball has already been set in motion. It's already started to unravel. You know, the facade has started to crumble. Like, at this point, you're just trying to, I don't know, sweep up the pieces and, I don't know, save, you know, I, I don't know. There's nothing, you can't stop the momentum that's happening at this point. You can't stop it. You just, you know, part of her, part of Elzora's um, warning or her fortune that she told was like, what did she say? She said, um, and I believe I, I go into this, but. I'm just getting off track now. But she says something like, um, you know, just wait. Just wait. And it was the idea of letting things sort of run its course. You know, let Lewis do what he's going to do. Let it run its course. He's going to fall on his own sword. Things are going to work itself out. It's going to solve itself out. What you need to be doing is focused on your children. That's what she should have been doing. But so, oh my God. Um, <laughs> um, let me get back on track. Um, so, and Lewis wrote a letter to Mazelle, his sister. He says that he needs to feel like a hero, and he also says that Cicely is his favorite child. Um, and being a hero, he also feels the need to be adored by the women, his wife, and his daughters. The favoritism, doting, and admiration he constantly needs, even at home. Um, he receives it from Sicily. Um, this creates favoritism and a wedge between Sicily and Eve, and especially uh, a wedge between Sicily and her mother because. Sicily, in him, he's seeking out this admiration and attention from Sicily because Sicily will always love him despite his faults. You know, she's looking at um, this, she's looking at Lewis through rose-colored or purple-colored glasses and you know, he's he, he can do no wrong. 
you know, and she's always going to have this consistent, you know, especially as a child, she's always going to have this consistent love, this consistent devotion and admiration toward him. He's not going to receive that from Ross because he's a cheating husband. <laughs> he's he's not a good husband. Like, you know, he's not going to receive that kind of attention from her because she's fed up with him. Um, and she, she doesn't like what is she, what he's doing. Um, so this is why I think he, he lets Cicely behave this way and he lets her, um, you know, sort of be spoiled and, and he lets her, you know, come visit him at the office after her mother said that no one was supposed to leave the house. So he he lets her he lets Cicely have her way because he always wants to he always wants that love and that um consistent love and attention from her but he know after after that incident um because she kissed him and he realized he was like this is not this is not right this is out of control and he slaps her, and he slaps her so hard she fell on the floor. Um, and he knew at that point that he, you know, this is a point where you know he, Cicely's behavior really, really changes to gets really dark, and um, that's a point I believe where he realizes that he's lost um, this sort of. Favor. He's lost this uh, consistent sort of love and admiration from her. But before all that, he was like, I'm going to just spoil Cicely. I'm going to let her have her way. I'm going to let her um, allow her to not listen to her mother. And um, because that's he, he'll, he wants his attention and he, he'll get it wherever he can, you know, Um so because he he's letting, you know, he's letting this sort of behavior continue for Cicely um, and letting it go unchecked, um, Cicely um, starts to see herself as equal to Roz, her mother. Um, not only because um, of the favoritism and the love that she receives from him, but also because she's starting to take on these sort of adult roles. Um, you know, biologically, you know, she's maturing, she's going through puberty, but she's also doing things, like I mentioned, waiting up for her father as a wife would uh, wait up for her husband when he's out late at night and he's supposed to be at home. She's um, fixing his drinks. Um, that was a, a, there's a clip in the, director's cut of her uh, of him coming home one night and she's like fixing his drink like she's his wife or something um and then she's also siding with him um instead of um listening to her mother so she is like she feels she wants to be like an another a, another adult in the household and not a child. Uh, so like this is weird uh, juxtaposition that's going on. It's all kinds of weird stuff. And uh, in referencing color, uh, I'm gonna go into this later on. But 
I I don't I mean it could be just a coincidence but I'm also like it could be done on purpose so there's a scene where both Roz and Cicely are wearing floral dresses they're wearing purple um uh, they're wearing something. I, I don't remember if Roz is wearing a dress or a cardigan, but whatever it is, they're both wearing something and has purple flowers on it. Um, Cicely has on the sort of ditzy juvenile playful print in style while her mother wears the um, adult, more mature looking abstract floral print. And I think that was like a little juxtaposition of of them trying to sort of, well, Cecily trying to be equal with her mother, you know, they're, they're showing that visually on the film, but not actually being equal, you know what I mean? Um, so, and I kind of went over this before because I'm not sticking to my outline. Roz, um, she says in the film that Cecily blames her she thinks that, uh, she says that Cicely thinks that she's driving Lewis away. Cicely, uh, she thinks that her father is blameless. Um, he can do no wrong, so it must be Roz's fault. Roz isn't looking to her children. She's not paying attention to them. She missed multiple opportunities to address Cicely getting overly involved in her parents' business. Um... This this is, is going to be an example of Eve um uh of Eve getting I mean they're both getting involved but this is a time where Eve's getting more involved in her parents' business way more involved than she should be um so she went to the market um she was going to go to Elzora to give her to get her to put some kind of fixer get like a voodoo doll so she could um kill her father for what she believed he did to Cecily she's at the market and um Maddie's Maddie's husband Maddie's husband is at the market and he's like, Hey, how you doing, Eve? They start talking. Um This is why I was like, Eve is just too grown. She's doing way too much. She says something, uh, she's talking to um Mr. Moreau and she's asking, like, Oh, do you still work at at the college? And he works at a college in New Orleans. Uh, he lives in East Bayou, this fictional town, but apparently it's somewhere far because it's a long drive. And he's like, if the weather's bad, um, sometimes I um, uh, I stay on campus. So he's not home a lot of the times. And that's why Maddie is out there doing whatever she wants to do because he's, you know, he's tired. He's driving back and forth from uh New Orleans, I mean from East Bayou to New Orleans, you know, it must be, you know, a long drive. So he's just like, "Oh my god." Um and uh he he uh he says, you know, sometimes I I like to come home um cuz I don't want Maddie to get lonely. 
And then he's like, Maddie don't seem like the lonely type. Um, and then she's like, you know, my mom, she she's the lonely type, not like daddy and Maddie. And then he gets this funny look on his face, like, why is this kid saying, like, why is, you know, Lewis and Maddie, why are they the lonely type? Why are they not the lonely type? Y'all, he, he ends up putting two and two together. And he figures it out. I don't know why. I mean, he's he was in denial. Okay, so he was in denial like Roz was at first before all this went down. Um, that this was actually going on. And it comes out in the end at the showdown that uh, him and Lewis were friends. You know, they, I mean, they all lived in this small town. They were friends. Him, him and Maddie were at the party in the beginning of the movie. Uh, so, like, he trusted Lewis. You know, if Maddie was having, was going to have an affair with anyone, it wouldn't have been, you know, his friend. Um, and so he was just in denial. But, once Eve like said that he the little hamster wheel started little hamster start running on the wheel and it was just like churning. And then she goes on to uh she just walks off just nonchalantly like she just didn't just tell this man that her dad and his wife are sleeping together. But she goes on to Azora's little booth and um he's like, I want to um she doesn't go to her booth. She ends up going to Elzora's house. That's what it is. But anyway, details are, but she's a talking to Elzora. And she's like, I want to, I want to kill somebody. You know, I want to, you know, do harm to somebody that's done harm to someone in my family. And Elzora tells Eve, people have a way of dying at their own speed. And I was like, mm-hmm. They do have a way of dying at their own speed. Because it was bound to happen. Both Lewis and uh, his sister Moselle are just reckless in love, both of them. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, I, she, I guess she's trying to, like, talk talk Eve out of it, but she's like, no, I'm going to do it. Um, there's also a scene where Eve kind of she thought she was going to have control of the situation. Um, but the little spell that Elzora allegedly told, she told Eve that she did it, but I don't think she actually did any type of um, voodoo or hex or anything or fixed him or anything like that. She just took Eve's money that Eve paid her to do it. I don't think she actually did anything because when Eve... Um, when Eve left out, I believe it was the second time she went to go see her, but when Eve took off running, she was like, oh my God, what have I done? Um, Elzora's like laughing, you know, this little girl freaking out because she knows she didn't really do anything. You know, this girl just freaking out. Like, you know, she thinks she actually, you know, gave this one money, this one did like a hex and killed, you know, and now her dad's going to die. But, you know, like faulty memories, misunderstandings, um, you know, like the way we feel about ourselves, the way we think, the way things that we believe are not always true. You know, that's not 
actually what happened. But in a way you could say that she in a way you could say that she did. I mean kind of like set it in motion, but she's not responsible for Lenny, you know, Mr. Moreau pulling the trigger and killing her dad. Like she's not responsible for that. I think you know, like I said earlier, like it was bound to happen and how, you know, Zora says people have a way of dying at their own speed and sometimes a soldier falls on his own sword. Like everyone in town knew that he was sleeping with Maddie. Like they were gossiping about that at the party in the beginning of the film. Um, so it was only a matter of time before where we're getting gotten back to Maddie's husband. And he would have been just as upset because Lewis was his friend. Um, and he was just like, and he probably felt like, you know, he was a fool, you know? Like, he just, you know, his ego, you know, his ego was crushed. You know, this man, you know, your friend is, like, cheating and everybody knows that this is going on but you. This 10-year-old girl knows that it's going on but you, you know, so... His ego was crushed. I think that, you know, that made him even more angry. Like, he had to prove to Lewis that this is his wife, this is his woman. He he can't, you know, just take his wife. After Lewis dies, Eve finds a letter, He the letter that I mentioned earlier, that Lewis wrote to Moselle. In the letter, Lewis reveals the truth. His truth, and this is again, you know, faulty memories. It's like, what's the truth? What really happened? I can only offer my my interpretation. And the movie, it's purposely left open because that's the point of, you know, faulty memories is that um, we don't always remember things as they are. We don't always understand things fully. Um, we misremember you know, all kinds of stuff. We're distracted, we're confused. Um, so after he finds the letter where he tells, um, where Lewis tells Moselle about when Cicely kissed him inappropriately, Eve, you know, she's taking charge again. She confronts Cicely after reading the letter. Um, Cicely is confused about what happened. Um, because memory is faulty, but not only because of that. Um, I think it's also because she doesn't understand um, what's going on. Her brain at 14 is still developing. Like, she doesn't, I don't think she fully understands what she you know, understood what she was doing and why she was doing it. So asking her, like, what happened? And she's like, I, I don't know what happened. Like, I, you know, I went down there and I was, you know, she doesn't understand why she's doing it or really what she's doing or what it means to be doing what she's doing. You know, like, she didn't, she didn't get it. So that confusion, that... I don't understand what happened. When Eve tries to use her gift of second sight to sort of see what happens, I don't think she really sees fully what happened because 
Cicely herself doesn't know what happened because she's confused and she doesn't understand. Like, how can you, how can someone get a clear interpretation of something inside your mind when you yourself don't even have a clear interpretation of what's inside your mind? You know, so it's like even, you know, at the end, when Eve tries to to know the truth, I don't think she really knows, but she she loves her sister and she's going to side with her sister because she cares about her and she knows that, you know, she understands everything went on and she she knows by Cicely's expression and her response that she's hurt about what went on and so she's not angry at her anymore um you know she's initially angry because she thought she lied but she didn't she didn't lie um she told her what she remembered she told her what she was able to understand about what happened and of course even as viewers and as Eve has her sister she immediately went to um, something that was very troubling and was very sad. And she was already angry with her dad for what he was doing. And so she was really like, ah, I'm ready to kill him for you. Like, I'm going to go pay this woman $20 to put a hex on him and try to kill him with voodoo. On to the next theme, um, ignoring warning signs. After Eve discovers her father cheating with Manny Rowe in the very the incident number one, um, Eve talks to her father outside. Then her mom, Roz, comes outside and you can tell by her response and her you know, her facial reaction that she senses that something happened, that something's wrong, but she just ignores that. And she just continues on like everything's fine. Um, and so I think that was probably at least the you know the the first the first instance on film where Roz ignores a warning sign. Um, within the the ignoring warning signs uh, are adults being reckless. And I mentioned this early, but Lewis and his sister, and she says this too. Lewis, uh, his sister says this about her and her brother that they are one and the same, but they are both reckless. Lewis and Maddie are out, you know, at the party dancing a little bit. I felt like it was a little bit too raunchy for like a family party. Um, and I was just like, you out here dancing with this woman and. And then you you know she's someone that you're sleeping with. And I was like, bruh, like, that's bold. That's reckless. Um, and then people are already gossiping. And you still seeing this woman. You're not trying to, like, you know, squash the gossip or nothing. He's just, like, he's just out there. Just out there. Um, she goes to... Um, she goes to, when she goes to visit Elzor, of course she, she ignores that warning sign 
right before he dies, when Mr. Moreau, um, he tells him, listen, you speak to my wife again and I will kill you. Do you understand? Um, he just blew that off. He did not take him seriously. He says good night to Maddie. And that's his last words. Letting his ego and I guess maybe his pride. Um, he says good night, you know, Maddie, one more time. His last time, his last L. And Mr. Rowe turns around, pulls out his gun, and shoots him twice right there in front of the little juke joint. Um, if that's not a gangster way to die, I don't know what is. I mean, it's tragic. You know, it didn't have to happen, but him and his sister are reckless like that. You know, they're out here. If they're not about to get killed, they're out here getting somebody else killed. <sighs> so that was the whole culmination of the premonition of, you know, the the real the realization of Elzora's warning when she says that sometimes a soldier falls on his own sword. That was it. That was Lewis falling on his own sword. <sighs> so that's sad. And uh with Moselle, um, her first husband, so the thing with her first husband is a scandalous. It was an entanglement. She was married to some guy. Uh Maynard, I think was his name. She was cheating on Maynard with Hosea. One day, Hosea shows up to the house. Just boy, he shows up to the house and he's like, Pack your bags, you're coming with me. Maynard being gangster, being I don't being stupid. Um, he's like, My wife's not going anywhere with you. And she, you know, Moselle was like, I was just so impressed. You know, I just I knew in that she's I knew in that instant that I love Maynard or he loved me. You know, like she was like, Oh, he really he really does love me. Like he's He's stepping up in front of this gun. And he's like, my wife is not going anywhere with you. Now get the hell out of my house. And the dude pulled a gun. The gun is pointed to Maynard's chest. She goes and stands by her husband. And, and, you know, in that moment, she's like, I knew I loved him. In that moment, she's like, she tells Hosea, it's like, you need to leave our house now. And then Hosea, like, looks at her with the gun still pointed at her husband. He looks at her and he says, okay then and shoots Maynard in the chest right there in front of everybody and that's how her first husband got shot and the other guy I assumed he ended up in jail um and then there was another husband um they didn't really talk about him but I just assumed that he got caught up in Moselle's shenanigans again and and she got him killed some kind of way by doing something stupid crazy but they're just so reckless. Like, it didn't have to be like that, y'all. But they're just, they're just reckless. And so now I'm going to talk about um, the colors used in this film. 
Um, I'm just scrolling through my notes. This is the last thing. You know, this is going on for a really long time, but I really love this movie. And I feel like there's so much to talk about. It's so many layers. The color is purple and blue. Like, I, when I was, like, years ago, when I was first watching this, I didn't notice, I didn't notice the colors. Like, I didn't notice purple. And I was reading an article, and they were talking about how purple is used in multiple instances throughout the film. And then I watched it um, for the second time, remembering that. And I was like, yeah, purple is used, like, a lot, a lot in this film. That's when I also noticed that the color blue is used a lot. So I added this to this section. So not just purple, purple and blue. Uh, so Eve is most often seen wearing shades of blue. Um, I don't really remember an instance where she wore purple. I, I feel like I, I think she was always shown wearing blue of some sort. Um, Lewis also his suits are often a bluish gray color. I may be tripping, I may be misremembering, but I felt like his his suits were like a blue gray color a lot of the times. Purple is used when dressing um, other female characters as well as in select props and decor. Um, sometimes the clothing seems like it's a mix of purple and blue, um, including floral patterns and rich blue blue violet um fabric blue um is associated with faith spirituality contentment loyalty fulfillment peace tranquility calm stability harmony unity trust truth confidence conservatism security cleanliness order the sky water cold technology and depression <sighs> y'all um there's a song that's played in the end credits it's called a child with the blues sung by er erica badu uh featuring new orleans native terrence blanchard it so with blue it perfectly summarizes the children's feelings and roles in the film um it also with that song it also reminded me Sort of Eve being the middle child and having the middle child blues. She's not the adorable baby boy. She's not the mature oldest who's growing into a young woman that favors their mother. Um, the most beautiful woman in the world is what Cicely says. Um, purple or violet is associated with erotic, royalty, nobility, spirituality, ceremony, mysterious, transformations, wisdom, enlightenment. Cruelty, arrogance, mourning, power, sensitive, uh, sensitivity, intimacy. And as I say these things, or as you listen to these things, um, hopefully that you are thinking about the characters and their personalities and their roles and the things they were going through in this film because these, those colors and the words that they are associated with uh, many, if not all, uh, represent or not represent, uh, I guess, yeah, represent and resonate with the atmosphere in the film and or the characters and the personalities. You know, I see E's personality in these words that I describe, you know, with Blue, she's trying to seek stability and harmony. Um, she represents, you know, with her youth, she represents this trust 
um, and truth. She has confidence. Um, the blue also associated with spirituality um, and her gift of second sight. Um, also tranquility and calm. And, and this is what Eve uh, wants, what she hopes for is what a child hopes for when, you know, their family and the relationship is going through turmoil. They want tranquility and calm and stability, um, security. Like those are the things that she wants as a child. She may not, can't, um, may not be able to articulate that, but that's what she wants. And then with the purple, um, the adult women were often seen wearing purple. Um, Sicily was also seen wearing purple, not in the same way that the adult women were wearing purple, but she was seen with purple, seen wearing purple and being sort of that transformation, sort of trying to transform into her mother, transforming into womanhood through purity, um, through puberty. Um, and then, you know, with the older um, adult women uh, wearing purple, symbolizes royalty, nobility, spirituality, mysteriousness, um, wisdom, enlightenment, um, the sensitivity with Moselle wearing purple. There's a, a, a purple ring that she wears um, in multiple scenes in the film. So this is all, you know, it's purposely done. Um, when telling a story, um, colors can elicit psychological reactions, draw focus to significant details, set the tone for the movie, uh, represent character traits, and show changes or arcs in the story. Um, I'm going to go through a couple, you know, a few more instances of where purple, uh, mainly purple is used. Um, Eve, well, purple and blue, I'm sorry. Eve places irises on the graves of Moselle's husbands, um, including the recently deceased Harry. She brings Moselle the final iris when she goes to visit her after Harry has been killed in the car accident. Um, she is again seen with the basket of irises when she goes to the market and runs into Mr. Moreau. And that's also when she goes to see Elzora. Um, when Moselle, when I first saw Moselle with the ring, the purple ring, she was having a session with a client and she was doing like a, a psychic counseling and she had the ring on her hand and the way that she does the her her second sight where she does her seeing and her psychic abilities is she says give me give me your hand and they touch hands and that's when she makes the the physical connection and the spiritual connection and then she's able to see what it is that they're trying to finance about so give me your hand and she's wearing the purple the, the ring with the purple um, stone on it, you know, it gets you to focus on her hand, the connection that that color means to, rep you know, when it refers to her abilities, so all of that. Um, also, the, there's room, like her the walls in her house are painted sort of like a light purple. There's also stained glass. 
uh, a stained glass window um, that has uh, purple glass in it. And you see it in the scene where Eve is walking up the stairs to her, to Moselle's bedroom when she goes to give her the iris. And I think there's something symbolic about irises as well, like that particular flower. And I think it's, uh, it represents like mourning or um, messages or something like that. I can't exactly remember, but I looked that up once a long time ago. Anyway, my oh, one of my other favorite scenes is in the movie. Roz is wearing this iridescent purple dress when her and Moselle go to get their fortunes told by Elzora. Uh, Moselle is wearing this dress that is very pretty as well. Moselle's dress. Now, I'm going to try to describe this because it's kind of... Um, I, I I shared a photo on my Twitter where Moselle is wearing this the dress in the photo, but it's a black halter dress. Um, it's got like a sweetheart neckline. And on the front of the neckline where the chest is, um, there's like this uh, oversized bow and the bow is black and white, you know, and then the halter strap, you know, the halter part that ties around like a halter is this bold black and white stripe print and it frames, you know, her chest and then it leads right up to her face. And then when you get up to her face, her hair is pulled up in a high bun. And so you're, you, you're guided visually to look up and, and focus on her face. And that's important in the next scene when she goes to get her fortunes told because um, her face is very expressive. It shows a lot of emotion in that scene. And the same thing with Roz. Um, her, the way her dress is cut, it's kind of like a sort of like a slight, sort of like a V cut almost. Um, but you are focused on the purple dress and then you go up and then you, you look up at her face and her hair is always, uh, brushed back away from her face. Like she doesn't wear bangs or anything. And, um, she has like this permanently like snatched face. And so it's just like, her face is just like. It's tight, like it's just always like it's not like it's just that's just how she looks, like that's just her face, and so it's just like this purple is like rush rushes up to her face, and then you look at her face, and she has these eyes and these cheekbones, and so you really are gonna focus on her face, both her and both Roz and Moselle's face in the scene where they have their fortunes told, um, but. Um, my favorite scene, um, uh, oh my God. So she's, before they go to get their fortune told, they're walking and it sort of describes, um, and get a little bit of raw, you know, Roz's personality and, you know, why she fell in love with Lewis and how they met and everything, um, so Roz, you know, they're having, it's like, it's like the end of a conversation. Like she says something, you don't know, really know who she's talking about, but she says, I was just wondering what happened with that woman. I suppose he fixed it. He knows how to fix things. When I first met Lewis, I watched him set this boy's leg who had fallen out of a tree. And I said to myself, he's a man who can fix things. He's a healer. He'll take care of me. 
So I leave my family and I move to this swamp and I find out he's just a man. And then Moselle responds, we're two of a kind, my brother and I. One day he'll turn around and he will see you for the first time and then he'll stop looking for what he already has. So she's, throughout this movie, she's trying to reassure Roz that, you know, like, you are enough, and that Lewis, this is Lewis, this is, this is his fault, this is what he's doing, you know, it's, it's not you. Um, but I was like, oh my God. It was really sad, you know, that this is what her, it started off, the relationship started off so great. You know, she had this great admiration and love for him that, you know, the kind of admiration and love that he's still seeking from other women, even though he's married to her. Um, that it comes to that, um, I guess he's sort of fallen from grace, fallen off the pedestal where she's like, he's not, uh, you know, worthy of this great admiration that I have for him because he's just a man, he's flawed, and he's imperfect. Um, but to, you know, come to that realization after all this point, I think is the saddest part, you know? Um, to go through all in your marriage, and it, you know, it's, it's all happy, and you have this great life, and he's successful, and you're doing well, and your kids are well taken care of. Um, and just that this is what it's come to, you know. Um, so they go to get their fortunes told at Azor's her little booth at the farmer's market. And there's purple little knickknacks, purple candles throughout Elzora's booth and on her tables. Um, when she when Roz goes to get her fortune told, um, Elzora starts off with you're in pain, my daughter. Yes, there is an end to your problem, though not one you imagine. Stay quiet and wait. Wait. Sometimes a soldier falls on his own sword. In three years' time, you will be happy again. Three years? And then um, Elzora um, finishes, uh, she says, look to your children. And Roz is like upset and she's like, that's it? Just wait three years and everything will be fine? And Laura's like, look to your children. You know, it's just like, look to your kids. You know, you're focused on the wrong thing. Like you're, you're, you're focused on the wrong thing. And Elzora's fortune is, uh, her, her point in telling Roz to wait is to not, to not make Roz feel powerless, but for um, Roz to, to not worry and not focus on Lewis and just wait because Lewis will succumb to his own demise and you know don't you don't need to be stressing about it. This is gonna work itself out on its own. But you know, I mean she loves him, she wants to save her marriage, she wants her children to have a father in his life, she wants that the marriage, you know, to be like it was before he was cheating or before she knew he was cheating. So she's she's still going to try to save him. I was always like, just just be still, just wait. 
um, that Porsche is going to work itself out right now. You need to focus on your children. And this kind of pulls, I should have probably put this, this next little segment in with the memory, but Moselle, um, she has her fortune told and Azora basically tells her she's a cursed woman and her next husband's going to die. All her husband's going to die. Um, Moselle leaves in a fit and that's being in the fit and not being in the right state of mind. You know, when she does have her vision, she misinterprets it and she thinks that one of the children are going to die, but, um, it's not one of the children. It's Lewis at the funeral. Now this is where, and I should have put this in the other side. I should have mentioned this up top when I first mentioned blue, but um, at the funeral, Eve is the only one not wearing black or a subdued color. Um, Eve is wearing this blue, blue and green kind of like plaid dress. Everyone else is kind of wearing black. Um, Louis's mom is wearing some kind of black and brown dress, but she's like kind of standing off by herself and she's wearing blue which is really odd because everyone else there is wearing some kind of dark color but she's wearing blue like that's her color um and like I mentioned earlier like that there that represents her and and what she's going through represents her personality her character oh my goodness um after the funeral I mean I don't know if it's right after the funeral but it's the next scene following the funeral scene Eve is again wearing blue. Um, Moselle walks up to her and um, she tells her that everything is going to be okay. Moselle tells Eve that she had a dream in which Lewis tells, um, told her to not look back. And I felt like she was sort of telling, you know, she was telling Eve to to not be angry with her father and to not um, be angry about the past and to not hold on to that. Like she's telling Eve this, but I think that was also in a way she's saying to her and to uh, to herself that for her that, you know, maybe... um, I mean, I was thinking that maybe she had finally learned her lesson about being reckless, especially after losing Lewis, you know, because of his reckless behavior. Um, but it was a way for her to, or to, for Lewis to tell her, for her to get this message that she, that she shouldn't be um, thinking about or focusing on her past mistakes or what that she, you know, things that she's done to cause this, uh, these husbands to die, but to do better moving forward. So it was like, uh, she was sort of telling Eve to comfort Eve, but also in a way to sort of comfort herself. Um, And uh, this extra, the final theme um symbol i didn't know where it fit in but um spiders and it's i mean it's kind of random um eve has a vision she has a prophetic dream about harry dying and in the dream she sees a spider 
Um, in the dream, the spider's like in a web, you know, he's in his spider web. And then there's another scene where she's looking out the window and there's a spider on the outside of the window, like on its little spider web. And so I was like, what is this thing with the spiders? Like, to, for just to appear, I mean, she could have been just looking out the window at the yard, you know, but instead there's a spider there. So I was like, maybe it means something. So I was like thinking about what spiders mean and um, it made me think of spiders. They are weavers of webs to catch prey. Um, they do it out of necessity, you know, for its survival, but weaving webs of lies or weaving webs of stories or um, weaving webs to trap others or memories being woven in webs together to sort of trap you or trap you in your past and trap you in your regret. So these sort of webs being woven for different methods and different motives um, that that was purposely put in the spider in its web. Um, sort of represents the um, the weaving together of stories and and lies and memories and and all of that. Uh, you know the the whole film being about memories and how memories are remembered and how well they are remembered or how poorly they are remembered it's a spider and the web and I feel like that was a good way to close this podcast episode that I feel like is was really 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 long but hopefully it's enjoyable interesting and um, hopefully I brought up some things that you may not have thought of or noticed. So hopefully the the length of this was worth it. Don't forget to follow me on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for Juncture Podcast and you'll see my logo. You can also find me on Twitter at Juncture Podcast. For those interested in dream interpretation, you can have your dream analyzed on an episode. Just go to my Twitter page at Juncture Podcast and there's a pinned post with a link to a form to submit your dream anonymously. Alternately, you can share the link with anyone that may be interested. And finally, thanks for listening to Juncture Podcast and I hope y'all tune in next time.